Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Jonah Hill's new drama, Mid-90s. Mr. Hill also wrote the film, which follows 13-year-old Stevie, who spends his summers in 90s-era Los Angeles, navigating between his troubled home life and a group of new friends that he meets at a Motor Avenue skate shop. Mid-90s marks Mr. Hill's directorial debut. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Hill spoke with director Bennett Miller about filming mid-90s. During their conversation, Mr. Hill discusses why he loved working with first-time actors, tips he received from Martin Scorsese and moderator Bennett Miller, and why his rehearsal process consisted of taking away the cast's phones and just talking. Jonah. Thank you very much. How did you know how to make this movie? <laughs> well, first of all, it, like a lot of this stuff is just sometimes it's odd or whatever, but it really is an honor to be here at this guild, like at the Directors Guild, and with my friend Bennett, who is a really good man. Um, he's. Uh, I learned a lot from you. I learned a lot. <laughs> I. Uh, I don't know. As you know, knowing me well, I'm a cinephile and I love filmmaking and hounded you all the time for answers and thoughts. We did Moneyball together. Sorry. Yeah, I acted for Bennett in his wonderful film Moneyball. And the, I don't know, the great benefit, I, I sort of fell into a surprise 15-year acting career and I, I love it. And I got to work with almost all of my heroes, you know, yourself and... Martin Scorsese and the Coen brothers. And honestly, it was like a it was like an entrance to Harvard for film, you know? It was like a master class in in film. And if you want to, people are generous with information. Like we'd go to lunches and I'd pay, and you'd give me a lot, and I'd hound you for information. And and you know, uh, I've been lucky enough to to have great teachers. And I also on the side, I'm like everyone here, I devour film. I love to just talk about movies and, and it's what I'm passionate about. And it's what makes me feel fulfilled and happy. And so, uh, you know, when I think about people's first films, you only get one shot at a first film. And I remember the day I finished the script, I went to your apartment and we took a photograph with, with the first draft. <laughs> I was like, I should find that picture. It's a funny picture. Um, but, you know, I, I probably could, my career's the reverse. I was like, at Sony for 10 years, like, like Mickey Rooney, <laughs> like, and then now I'm at A24, like, like, I just wanted to make something that really meant something to me and really figure out my voice before I did it. My, my feeling about Jonah is that um, you emerged as a public figure and created an impression because of the roles you did and because you were that funny 
and what those films were that slowly, methodically, like who you are is slowly coming out. And this seems like a big step. But when I cast you in Moneyball, the internet was abuzz with like, what is that? Like stunt casting and like, what, like, what I was shoved down your throat. It's not true. Uh, it was no, my was choice. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, but it, but I had known you before because you had acted with Catherine Keener. And so I didn't, my impression of you wasn't that. It was knowing you as like an unbelievably smart, serious, curious, a little dark, and uh, made perfect sense for that. But that's when I first encountered that there's this you know, difference between. And, uh, and now this, which is awfully personal, first film. How much do you share about the overlap of your life and what this is to you? Well, thank you for that. I think, I think the first thing you said is really interesting because I was like 20 when I started. I was 18 when I started making movies. So what do you like to do when you're 18? Like tell jokes with your friends. <laughs> and um, as an actor, I just kept getting cast as this certain thing and it was a part of my personality like being funny is a big part of my personality but it's one sliver of my personality and so uh, what's been wonderful about the past four years whether it's crazy life stuff happening and really writing and directing this film it's an evolution of me like almost coming out as myself essentially and not as like what other people want me to be or what other people think I am I uh, I want to just be myself, and this movie is my heart, and it's how I feel, and it's how I see the world and saw the world growing up. And um, honestly, it just feels really good to like not be anybody but myself. It's just a nice feeling, which is also kind of what the film is about too. Um, is there anything? that you know now about directing a film that you could not have known before? Yeah. Honestly, I loved working with first-time actors. That, honestly, to me, the, the great joy of this, as we all know, having made films together and made films separately, is like, show business can make people jaded. It can make people over everything, you know? and. Uh, so there's twofold. There's that, you know, when I'm around doing press with the kids, they're literally happy there's tacos at the party. You know, like they are, their joy is infectious, you know? It's not fabricated. It's not, you're smiling because Sonny, you know, the film ended in Toronto where we premiered the film and it was an amazing night and that's where I saw Moneyball where we premiered too and so I gave the kids that experience you gave me. And it was such a special night in my life, I waited to show them the film for the first night in Toronto. And I'll always remember that, because like our families were there, and it was awesome. And, and the movie ends, and Sonny, who's 11, he has never, they've never seen the movie. So I'm watching the kids watch the movie, and the singular most moving experience of my life is, I had written for three years, and was prepared to throw away the screenplay, and, and we, you helped me even, we discussed like, how can you make it look beautiful and have them improvise, right? 
they didn't want to improvise. They wanted to become these people who they weren't. They wanted to become actors and artists. And watching that from people who are usually not given opportunities by society to watch them like flourish was uh, like moving on a level I can't really describe. And the challenge really was bringing the famous actors down to the reality level of the non-actors. To get them in the same film was actually one of the bigger challenges. Because even the most brilliant actor is not like just someone off the street, you know? So how did you find them and how did you get them all in the same film? And how did you know that that is a thing, getting people in the same <laughs> film? Which is, to, to me, you know, that, that is a big, it's, it's a big challenge, you know, and you know immediately. You know immediately when somebody is... In a different film. In a different film. These, what was your, how'd you find them? What was your process? And how did they all end up being in the same film? I mean, you have to think about, it. I've been in so many movies. I've been in so many different movies. In lots of movies, as an actor, you're dropped in like you're a parachuter. <laughs> like you don't choose your crew, you don't choose the other actors. So often you're in a different film. I think I'm in like, you know, The Graduate and they think they're in like Porky's. And so like it doesn't align, you know? And so I felt that discomfort so tangibly so many times that it, I feel it, and then I also have just very specific taste in film and what photography that I like and the way people speak, like all those ums and everything, like that's in the screenplay, you know? Like I, I like breathing is my favorite acting, that's what I always say. <laughs> I always told Sonny, like my favorite acting is breathing. You shouldn't say anything if you don't have to, you know? And you taught me something about like the voodoo, right? You used the term voodoo one time when we were at dinner and I really liked that of like, maybe you don't remember, but it was just like the vibe of everything. And you just see it. You see them in a scene together and you see one is acting and one is, one is this. And I got to give it to Lucas and Catherine because I've never had to do that. And uh, they, I, I said to them, you know, this is his movie. You're in his movie. They're not in your movie. So please adapt to that. You know, and then I would say, say it again, say it with nothing on it, say it like monotone, say it robot, you know, and you get there, you know. How did you find Stevie? I found Stevie at a skate park. This is the weirdest story. So Stevie is the only one he had acted before, but I didn't know. I saw him at a skate park and I, I knew it was him. I was just like, that's the guy because what I was looking for was someone who was really small for his age, but 10 feet tall inside. And I knew I wasn't gonna cast a meek kid in fake confidence. I would prefer to fake meekness and have true confidence. And Sonny is 10, literally you meet him and he's like, what's up? How's it going, man? He like did not give a shit about meeting me, does not care about me at all or my film stuff. He just, um, uh, I just knew it. And he was the first kid we auditioned. We auditioned one day only, three kids. Sonny was the first. And I knew, I mean, it was, it was a wrap by the time his audition was done. He did the scene, my, maybe my second favorite scene in the film with uh, him yelling at Kath, and his mother in the car. And it just shut everybody in the room up. Like it wasn't a kid acting mad at his mom. It was violent and 
and sad and uncomfortable. And I was like, this person's a freak. And the least amount of time I had to put in was with Sonny. He just, he is a special person. He's 11 when we shot that. I'm 34 and I've never had to strap a movie to my back like that and walk across the field, you know? Um, I don't know how much time we have, but I know we want to take some questions from the audience. Is that Amy Heckerling? Oh my God. Who is that? Thank you. This is cool. Well, not like deliberately or literally, she asked what happens to them next. And to me, this is uh, the moment that they all start to fracture. You know, that's like the snapshot. The last shot you see is the last time um, things are truly that close again for everybody. Oh, it's not as literal as that. It's just, it's just, what are you, the story police, Amy? You made fast times for six. Can't you just talk about the film? What happened to Spicoli three years after? Are you going to tell me? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, the, the idea, the whole heartbreak is it's the end of this moment for these people, like their family, and this is the end. This is the final, you know, uh, things in life, friendships fracture, time goes on. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, Ray and Fuckshit are clearly on different paths, and it, uh, the little kids are on their own wave, and it just is sort of like, I love that last shot because it was just like, this is how I want to remember them like this, even though they all disperse, you know? Can you tell the story about fourth grade and the permanent imprint he's left with you on your body? <laughs> so myself, uh, I want to really give it up for my, my favorite performance in the movie is Nikhil Smith, who plays Ray. Uh, he is, that was his first time ever acting, and he's really like, he's one of the most famous pro skateboarders, and he had never acted before, and he's just unbelievable. Um, and fourth grade, Ryder, he drew all the stuff. I had him, he was filming the whole time, so we used his footage to make the video, and then I had him draw Strong Baby and everything, and myself, my DP, uh, my brother Christopher Blauvelt, and Nakel got strong baby tattoos. So we became like a family, and we got um, strong baby tattooed on our bodies for life, which I will never regret. Who else has a question? That's a great question, the aspect ratio and where that choice came from. Um, a lot of things with this movie could have gone wrong in doing things because they're cool, you know? Like just trying to like make it look cool or make it like overly stylized with no point. <clears throat> and for me, um, we were have, the idea was to have him film on high eight, which we actually used one of Bennett's cameras that he loaned me for the shoot. I, I haven't gotten it back. It's in, my, it's in my house. <laughs> I swear to God, it's in my house. I actually have it here. I swear to God, it's in my house. <laughs> that is so true. I have literally stolen it from Bennett. But he gave me, he gave me one of the, the cameras we, we had fourth grade using in the film that you shot the cruise on. I, I want it back. I have it safe and sound. I swear, I swear to God, I have it safe and sound, and I apologize. Um, but the initial idea was I wasn't sure. I thought maybe I would be cutting his footage in during the film. I, it ended up not working and taking you out of the film. But we tested as if maybe I would do that in editing. 
And if you used a normal aspect ratio and cut between that and the high eight, it was really jarring. It really took you out. And the four three uh, cut like butter with the high eight together. So even though we didn't end up using it, we were like, if we use it, we should do it. And then it also, we just loved how it looked with the Super 16. But there was a reason for it, not just because it looked cool. I, I thought you were going to say you did it because of Bergman's uh, wild strawberries. Is... I don't bite off a of Bergman ever. Okay. That was a joke. <laughs> he asked if it's personal and like what parts are personal, if, because it seems like a real and honest film. And it's the best movie you've ever seen in your... He also said it's the best movie he's ever seen in his entire life. Um, no, um, it's not like an autobiography. It's not like a biopic, you know? It is personal in the sense that this is how the feelings I felt growing up, the loneliness I felt, the wanting to connect to a tribe of people, um, the animal kingdom, you know? Like just being a cub in the animal kingdom. And when you're the young person and you're trying to figure out the chess of being accepted and like moving up, right? So where, you know, these things weren't literal events, there are some things that literally did happen, but mostly like any writer, I think, you're just inspired by the feelings of life. Like most bands, their first album are about the first 20 years of their life because that's what you have. Like Coming of Age is a, a classic first time director film for a reason because it, that's all I know. That's all I've reflected on. I'm 34 is the first 20 years of my life. So a lot of stuff is mostly just a story and they're mostly just complex characters, but all of the feelings, I can feel the feelings of every person in that film, you know, in some way or another. No, f oh, what was the rehearsal process? She asked, um, no phones ever. No phones. So the only reason I like really said it in the 90s was because we didn't have cell phones and we would end up in these intimate conversations because now when things get too intimate, you pull out your phone and you have Instagram, like you don't want to connect like that, you know? So these kids are so addicted to their phones. I sound like a grandpa, but it's true. Like they are, they literally are psychotically addicted to their phones. And I would take all their phones away and we would mostly just talk for the first like couple weeks. Like I didn't want them to like get too tripped up on what it was and I would, and I, I really did learn, not to embarrass you, but I did learn this from you, is a lot of times we would talk about other stuff and I didn't realize you were talking to me about like the movie till way later, you know? And like upon reflection of our experience, I'd go like, wow, Bennett was like actually talking to me about this scene or this, or my character, but he, I didn't realize it. I thought I was just talking to my director. And so I, I definitely- I, I don't make social conversation. <laughs> Everything we've ever shared has been strictly business. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but, but like, so I kind of tried to do that. I would like take them out and we'd go on long walks and I would just talk about other stuff, but really I would slip in stuff like about certain emotions or feelings from, from the screenplay and ask them if like they had felt that without it being too literal or try and find other metaphors. And, and then we had about like a month of like just down and dirty, like just gnarly rehearsal and again like I said these these kids just blew my mind from day one shaking to the end they were putting up scenes basically on their you know like you would be, I would be so impressed how they would put up a scene like I'd walk to set after setting up the shot or I'd go to the trailers and they'd be running the scene 
and I'd see their own take on running the scene before I ever got to it with them. And it just blew my mind. Thanks. Yes. Um, we did and, and how you afforded it. Yeah. <laughs> Bennett, <laughs> when we were watching the credits, Bennett was like, you must have had a huge music budget. And um, we didn't have a huge music budget. No, what I said is, how did you get that music? Okay, sorry, I apologize. That's some, I, said, those, I said, those are some expensive tracks. Yeah. yeah, so I wrote letters and uh, really personal letters and really emotional letters. And for me, in my mind, the trickiest is Morrissey because uh, he's Morrissey and he's so epic. And that's a cue when he, after they go skateboard after that long conversation. And um, for those of you who don't know who Morrissey is, it's like... An, where him and Ray are skating at night. And Everyone sleep. here knows who Morrissey is. Okay, some people might not know who Morrissey is. Okay. And so I wrote Morrissey this personal letter, and he immediately just wrote back, like, can't wait to see mid-90s, Morrissey. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. And I was, like, forwarding around the email, like, Morrissey knows what mid-90s is. Like, this thing I wrote in my room, like, Morrissey knows it. He's my best friend, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and, and, um... Then I happen to have a, a very, I'm, I'm really good friends, and he's one of my heroes, is Q-Tip, and so I got Tribe Called Quest next. And so I figured if I got Morrissey and Tribe Called Quest, most people were gonna understand we were serious business, and it was a film that like meant something if those two artists would license their music for cheap for it. And um, the only one I can't believe we got still is Nirvana from the Unplugged album. They've never had an Unplugged song in a film, and that was the first song. When I say it's personal, it's not like that stuff literally happened, but like that's the first song I learned on guitar. So like that's why that's in the film, you know? Because it's like, it means something to me, even though if it doesn't, it wasn't literally playing when I made out with a girl for the first time or something like, but yeah, so I, it was the first song I remember what was, singing. What was it like shooting that scene? It was, um, <laughs> no, it, it, it was, it was, uh, you want people, to me, it's as important as the film to be good is that people feel good and respected, and especially kids. I mean, Sunny was 11. She was uh, quite a bit older, Alexa. And we just talked about it really, really thoroughly and respectfully. And, and you know, they really do just kiss. It just seems, I just wanted to make it feel like the most intimate makeout scene you've ever seen in a film. and. To me, there's a real point in showing that scene. And the scene, the point I'm trying to make is, is he doesn't even enjoy the sexual encounter. He's terrified, he's like shaking. And one of the fucked up lessons I know people learned, at least back then in, your, in a group of boys growing up, is that sexuality is essentially currency. He only enjoys it once he realizes it, it's gonna advance him further. And so I wanted to show him legitimately terrified and uncomfortable. And then when he comes out, he's a hero, which is a lesson where you have to unlearn. It wasn't about a special connection between two people. It was about him advancing. And shooting it was just, as you'd imagine, like we kicked everybody out. It was just me and Blauvelt and, and Scotty and uh, Sky Robertson, greatest first AD ever, works with both of us. Can't believe I get to say that now. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it was just Sonny and Alexa and Blauvelt and me and Scotty and, and, you know, everyone just understood the importance of the scene and they felt safe and respected. 
seeing Stevie horrified and physically like abused and abusing himself and taking a fall, it, like next to Passion of Christ, this is <laughs> one of the most difficult things to look at. Well, that's why I wanted him to be so small. I wanted him to feel young for his age because um, it was hard to watch. You know, like the interesting thing is Sonny is, uh, he's on Adidas. He's like going to be a professional skateboarder. So he's essentially a professional stuntman. So like the harder part was getting Lucas Hedges, who is the kindest, sweetest person in the world, to beat up Sonny for real. Because I had um, been fortunate enough to like, I sought advice for you, I sought advice from Martin Scorsese before we started shooting. And one of the things, he, we talked about the opening of the film and he's like, you have to do it in one shot. Like you can't cut in and have him punching him because it's like, it, even if it's from further away, it'll just feel more real and uncomfortable. And he was absolutely right, obviously. And um, I said to the kids, I said, look, like, you know, there's no other way to do this. Um, I'm an actor, I do stuff like this, that's my choice. If you don't wanna do this, we will figure out some way to do it. And they both were like, no, we wanna do it for real. And Lucas, the first two takes, was so meek in throwing Sonny against the wall. And Sonny's like, and throw me against the wall, man. What are you doing? He's like, I don't want to do this 50 times. He's like, just do it. He's like, he's like an 80-year-old, 11-year-old. He literally is like, I'll be in my trailer, man. <laughs> so Lucas is so sweet. He didn't want to beat up Sonny. And I had to be like, look, like he can take it. Sonny was like laughing, you know, like he, he loves this kind of stuff. He's a physical guy. And he understood that. And the Nintendo court scene, which is the hardest scene to shoot emotionally, um, he did 11 takes of. And he kept asking for more. And, you know, that was an important scene to me. And I just, as maybe, I don't know if you feel this way, but when you write something so meaningful and people show up and do it, or you would die for them. Like it's, there's no other feeling in the world that he wanted to honor that and he understood it. Why, why was that scene important to you? Because when we got to that scene, I was like, oh my God, I can't take it one more time. Uh, and, and that's the also, hardest one to watch. Because both of them, like you see like the, the damage that's happening to both of them. Uh, it's like he's, Lucas is covered up and, and, and Sonny's with the court. Why, why was that important? It's important to me, when I, I, I think about abuse, I read about abuse, I research it, and I talk to friends of mine who had like gnarly scenarios, um, I was fascinated by the idea that you could be enamored with the person hurting you, right? And this person, hurts him, but he just wants his love. So he's learning a weird version of love, you know? And in that moment, he fights back, which is what causes that final fight. Like it's his moment of defiance to him. And he gets beaten for it, right? In retaliation. And he's so upset, like he just is at a loss that the feelings are too uncomfortable to feel 
So he needs some way to escape the feelings that are emotional and make them physical. And to me, things have to work three things for me to put them in this film. Like sometimes it's like three layers of things, like the like uh, character, story, and then commentary hopefully would be awesome if you can get the third. And, and to me, those game controllers were just like dangerous also. <laughs> like they were just like so weird. There would just be this like rope or cord in your room and um, I don't know. It just also, the image of it is something I've never seen quite like that. And I'm really, what's the word am I looking for? I'm really pleased that people ride with the self-abuse. Not that they like it, but that they understand it's part of his journey and don't walk out of the theater or something, you know? Because it is hard to watch, but I think it's important to watch. Terribly. She asked if I skated growing up. I was 100% dedication and 14% skill. But I, w I hung out and worked at that skate shop for four years. Uh, not that one, but a skate shop in Los Angeles in the mid-90s. And um, I was terrible at it, but what I loved about it is it shapes your lens that you see life through, like the anti-ness of it. When they, what draws Stevie in is so simple. They see how he talks, how they talk to an adult. They seem close, and then when the adult tries to challenge them, they speak down to the adult. And, and that is captivating. That's either for you or it's not when you're a young person, you know? And then it gives you taste in film, it gives you taste in clothes, it gives you taste in Big Brother was a magazine that a friend of ours worked on, and it was like, the sense of humor was so subversive. Like, it just, it shapes you in a way. And I think a lot of cool artists like Spike Jones and different people come from skating because it is this really individual thing that everyone's an individual that forms a group. And it's, it's special. And I wanted people to look at them and maybe think differently when you drive by some skateboarders on the street and think about maybe like these kinds of people, you know? That's very sweet. So if, if somebody you. has like a really, really, really good question, <laughs> we have time for one more, so don't blow it, okay? Go yeah. ahead. If they let me. <laughs> I mean, the reward would be to be in the process again. Like, it was the most joyous, fulfilling, wonderful experience in my life. I've wanted to be a filmmaker my whole life, and um, if I get any sort, I'll thank you. If I get any sort of reward, it's to get to do it again. That's it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to my friend Bennett for doing this. And Amy Heckerling. <laughs> Spicole. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as awards season approaches, including Q&As from Allison Chernick, Paul Greengrass, and George Tillman Jr. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.